Hey everybody, Magnus here. Got a little bit of a mea culpa to go through here and... Well, mea culpa. Not really sure if that's necessarily the best way to put it, but it goes a little something-something like this. Basically, this episode is just about the time that I should be releasing a new entry in the Big Book Report series. Historically, this has always been the case. Every seventh episode of my show is supposed to be just a, a, a team-up with Chris Honeywell, wherein he and I talk about something from the DC-slash-Paradox press line of big books. And I call that series of podcasts The Big, big Book Report. Book Report. There's a little bit of a problem to go through this time, though. Specifically, and unfortunately, Chris and I were just unable to get our schedules to line up properly. Now, I know I've got this reputation of recording all of my shit ahead of time, but, as I say, it just happened this way. Life got in the way of Chris's schedule, then it got in the way of my schedule, and so he and I have not yet had a chance to record the next episode of the Big Book Report. And as I say, it's really not anybody's fault. It's just life stuff that happens sometimes. I mean, he's got a schedule that he's got to keep up with, responsibilities that he needs to meet, and I've got responsibilities that I need to meet. I've got a wacky enough schedule as it is. Just ask anybody who's ever recorded with me just how fucked up my schedule really is. So... I'm certainly not saying any of this to bash on Chris. I do consider the guy to be a friend. It's just one of those times when the law of averages just beat us. That's all. So this still left a little bit of a hole in the schedule, and so I kind of had to figure out what I was going to release this week as an episode, especially on short notice. Now, as I say, I've got this reputation of having recorded all of my bullshit way ahead of time, and so, to me, the most logical thing to do was look through my little archive here and see if there's an episode that I could release right now. And then fucking release it right now. And so, that's what I decided to do. The episode that you're going to hear, details of which are to follow, but the episode that you're about to hear, it was originally scheduled to come out at the end of this year. That is to say, at the end of 2015. And it was basically going to be part of uh, a, a much, much, much bigger series uh, that I had going on, and so that was going to be that was going to be the plan. You know, this was going to be sort of the first part of this massive series that was going to actually require 12 episodes uh, in order to work through all of this. And so, and again, I'll. I'll get into details on that much later this year, but this was going to be the opening salvo. Yes, I truly do record my shit that far in advance. And so, um, that's, that's just, that was the plan. Listening to this, though, odd as it may seem, this was sort of a natural choice for me to release right now. Not just because I needed a, a mostly finished episode to release right now, although there's that. But more from the angle that I wanted to have a sort, some kind of observance for Father's Day, which is coming soon. 
And oddly, at the time that I record this anyway, it's coming soon. And oddly enough, this was a sort of interesting, unintentional acknowledgement of Father's Day. So what better choice is there for me to release right now on short notice? So anyway, that's pretty much, I guess, the behind-the-scenes story. And yes, I truly do record my stuff that far ahead of time. But as I say, Chris's time is at a premium. My time is at a premium. And so we just really were not able to uh, to get going on this. My apologies, guys. You know, shit happens. And I hope it says at least something that, you know, in spite of the fact that this has caught me off guard, I still have a, I still had a, a fully produced, totally finished episode, mixed, edited, ready to go. And uh, so hopefully that does somewhat preserve my reputation as a planner and being able to get all of this stuff organized way ahead of time. So that's what I'm hoping for. Anyway, so that's pretty much that. Now enjoy the rest of the episode. Hey, your attention, please. This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears body to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Yeah. Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and as might become evident, I've been going through a serious Batman kick lately. Now, some of you may not realize this, but that's kind of a big deal for me. The reason for that's because I've held Batman at arm's length for a pretty long time now. Probably several years. And a lot of that has to do with his fucking fans. Now, I've ranted about him before, so there's probably nothing to be gained by going through it again here, but the reason I mention it is because I've come to realize that I shouldn't let other people define my fandom for me. Fact is, Batman's an awesome character, and even if his fans behave like total fuckwidgets, and they do, well, whatever, I shouldn't let it phase me. So anyway, to business. When I was really trying to build up my uh, Batman back issue collection, my unicorn comic was undoubtedly Batman number 368. Now, for those of you who don't know, that was Jason Todd's official debut as Robin. It's hard to put it all into words now, but I wanted that comic. I wanted it in a big, bad way. The problem I ran into, though, was that obviously a comic book shop is likely to carry back issues. That place and nowhere else. And being as I was 10 years old, I couldn't just hop into my car and drive there to, uh, to buy the comic book. And even if I could, 20 bucks seemed to be the going rate for Batman number 368 at least in my local area, and as a 10-year-old kid of modest means, I didn't have that kind of money. 
So it was a little bit of a stalemate. But then fate intervened. I received a pretty big check for my birthday from my grandmother. More than enough to pay for a copy of Batman number 368. You see, kiddies, back then, I was willing to pay 20 bucks for a back issue of uh, any comic book that I really wanted. These days, there's no way in hell I'd pay that much for any back issue published after 1980. It just won't happen. But I had a different mentality about it back then. Still, even though I had the money... There was that small problem of getting to a comic book store, and so I enlisted my dad. I knew for a fact that the best comic book store in town was just up the road from his office, so I politely asked him, which is a politic way of saying that I pulled rank and demanded that he drive to that comic book store after he got off work to pick up Batman number 368 for me. And he agreed with gusto. So I gave him the money he'd need to pay for it, and that was that. The entire next day was hell, people. I ain't gonna lie. I was bouncing off the walls with excitement. I was so happy that I was finally getting a copy of this, this most elusive back issue. I can only imagine what a nightmare brat I must have been at school that entire day. But anyway... My dad got home at around 8 o'clock later that night, and I was practically vibrating from the anticipation of it all by that point. And I immediately knew there was a problem. My dad was smiling way too big. And you see, I knew for a fact that I had not done a very good job of explaining to him why it is that I wanted Batman number 368. But I'd gotten the impression that he was willing to indulge me on this. Go along to get along, right? The fact that he was smiling ear to ear meant... <sighs> I couldn't even bring myself to contemplate it. He said, Good news! I saw that Batman comic that you were talking about up at the store, but they wanted 20 bucks for it. Can you believe that? 20 bucks. So instead, I picked you up two other Batman comics. Isn't that awesome? You get two Batman comics instead of one. And look at all the money you have left over. I mean, I... I just wanted to puke. You know? I just couldn't help it. I mean, yeah, the guy had been nice enough to buy me comics, but damn it to hell, he got me new issues. I can get those anytime I damn well please. What I can't get anytime I damn well please is Batman number 368. And I knew damn good and well how much that comic book cost. The whole reason I sent him to the comic book shop for me in the first place was because I can't go myself. That's what I was thinking anyway. But I just couldn't bring myself to say it out loud. My dad did what he thought was best. He truly believed that I would think that he'd made the right move. Now, yeah, true, he could have listened to me a little more closely, shut the fuck up, and followed his instructions, but on the other hand, he's a civilian. And this was the first time that I came to realize that civilians can't be expected to understand. 
His task was to get Batman number 368. Yes, it'll cost money. But one comic book isn't as good as another. Batman number 368 was the target of this assignment because it is historically important. Even so, I took my shitloads of change and my comics up to my room and pouted for a good long time. I tried to take my mind off this miserable failure of my dad's any way I could, but nothing worked. Eventually, I decided to just bite the bullet and see which two comics my dad purchased for me. The first one I pulled out of the bag was Batman number 460. It was part one of a two-part Catwoman story. Ooh, be still my heart. I read it and... You know what? That's a different topic for a different episode. The other comic book was Detective Comics number 627. Everything about this cover screamed that this was something special. First off, it was painted by Norm Brayfogle. Now, I'd been an admirer of Norm Brayfogle's for very close to a year by that point. Then as now, Norm Brayfogle's Batman is damned close to definitive for me. I just love his style, his take on the character, his use of shadows, his exaggerated proportions, the whole thing. There's pretty much nothing that I'd change about Brayfogle from an artistic standpoint. And did I mention that that son of a buck is painted? Yes, indeedy. Now, I wasn't familiar with painted Brayfogle art back then. Or even now, for that matter. So, the cover of Detective Comics number 627 was visually captivating just because of that stuff. You know? But... Over and above all that stuff, the cover for Detective Comics number 627 is a very obvious homage to the cover of Detective Comics number 27. Specifically, it's Batman swinging through the air with some random thug in a chokehold, while the two punks from the beginning of the 1989 Batman film watch in terror. As to the comic itself, Detective Comics number 627 begins with a reprint of the Batman story from Detective Comics number 27. At the top of page one, we see a silhouette of Batman against a full moon, along with a caption saying, The Batman, a mysterious and adventurous figure, fighting for righteousness and apprehending the wrongdoer in his lone battle against the evil forces of society. His identity remains unknown. From there... The story, which is entitled The Case of the Chemical Syndicate, opens at the home of Commissioner Gordon while he entertains his young friend Bruce Wayne. They discuss current events. Specifically, Gordon's intrigued with the Batman and all the trouble that he's been causing lately. Suddenly, Commissioner Gordon receives a phone call informing him that Lambert, a well-known chemical industrialist, has just been murdered. Gordon's night off is obviously over now, so he invites Bruce to come to the come with him to the to the crime scene. Bruce says he's got nothing better to do, and he and Gordon haul balls to the Lambert residence. Gordon and the rest of the police on the scene perform the standard examination of the crime scene, after which the sergeant on duty takes Gordon into the room where Lambert's son is being held. The son is clearly verging on panic as he endlessly procla- uh, proclaims his innocence, in spite of the fact that his fingertip, uh, fingerprints are on the knife that killed his father. Lambert's son, who doesn't 
seem to have a name, tells Gordon and the police that he came home and found his father with a knife sticking out of his back. Young Lambert pulled the knife out and then rolled his father over just in time to hear Lambert Sr. say, say the word contract twice, at which time he gave up the ghost. When Gordon asked young Lambert if his father had any enemies, the kid mentioned Stephen Crane, Paul Rogers, and Alfred Stryker, all of whom are former business partners. At that moment, the sergeant on duty interrupts the conversation to report that Steve Crane is on the phone at that very moment, and he's asking to speak to Commissioner Gordon. Crane reports that Lambert received an anonymous death threat, and Crane's received one as well. Gordon tells him to hunker down until some police officers can get there to protect him. At that moment, Bruce Wayne announces that he's heading home. Later, at the Crane residence, Stephen sits in his library with a sense of impending danger closing in on him. Suddenly, an unknown gunman breaks into the library, shoots Stephen Crane dead, grabs a sheet of paper, and heads out a window. The gunman meets his accomplice on the roof of the Crane residence. His partner asks if he managed to grab the paper, and the gunman replies that he did. At that moment, the Batman appears out of nowhere and beats the piss out of the murderers, and even throwing the gunman off the roof of the house to his death two stories down. From there, the Batman grabs the paper the gunman stole from Crane's library. At that moment, Commissioner Gordon arrives on the scene and the police open fire on the Batman, who manages to escape. Crane's butler, who also doesn't seem to have a name, tells the police that Crane's been murdered. Commissioner Gordon decides to pay Paul, Roger, Paul Rogers a visit, since it's very likely that he's in terrible danger, too. Elsewhere, the Batman sits in his car reading the paper that he retrieved from the gunman who killed Stephen Crane. A smile comes to Batman's lips as he speeds his car to an unknown destination. Meanwhile, Rogers who's learned of Lambert's death by news broadcast, has already gone to the neighboring laboratory of his erstwhile partner, Alfred Stryker. There he meets Jennings, Stryker's lab assistant. Jennings invites Rogers inside, at which time he attacks him and knocks him out using one of those metal fuckers that people use to knock other people out in old movies. Jennings trusses Rogers up, cackling to himself that he's about to get one more out of the way. And soon, he'll control everything. When Rogers comes to, Jennings announces that he's trapped him inside a gas chamber. Once he, Jennings, throws the switch, the glass wall will close around Ro uh, Rogers, the gas will get piped in, and Rogers will die. After Jennings heads downstairs to turn on the gas, the Batman leaps through an open transom, grabs a wrench off a table, runs across the room, and barely makes it, before, uh, makes it to Rogers before the glass wall encloses around both of them. After that, the Batman plugs the gas pipe with a rag and smashes the glass wall open so that he and Rogers can escape. Jennings returns and is startled by the Batman and reaches for his gun, but the Batman takes him down with a flying tackle and then knocks him unconscious with one punch. Then, the Batman vanishes. At that moment, Alfred Stryker bursts into the lab and asks Rogers just what the fuck's going on. Rogers says that Jennings, Stryker's assistant, tried to kill him. Stryker says that's too bad and then tries to stab Rogers, but the Batman appears out of nowhere and disarms Stryker. The Batman then spills the beans on the whole thing. 
Lambert, Crane, Rogers, and Stryker were all partners in the Apex Chemical Corporation. Stryker wanted to be the sole owner of the company. Problem is, though, he didn't want to buy the other partners out. Murder's a lot cheaper, so he decided Lambert, Crane, and Rogers all had to die. Because the contract was a secret between the four partners, nobody outside the group would be any the wiser. In the original Detective Comics number 27, the Millennium Edition reprint, and I think the Batman Chronicles, Stryker wrestles away from the Batman while pulling a gun and shouting his confession, but refusing to be sent to the chair for it. But here in Detective Comics number 627, as well as a lot of other reprints, Stryker says nothing at all. He just wrestles away from the Batman while pulling a gun, who punches him right in the face and sends him toppling over the rail and into a vat of acid. A fitting end for his kind. Rogers turns to thank the Batman for saving his life, only to find that the Batman has vanished. The next day, Bruce Wayne drops in for another visit at Commissioner Gordon's house. Gordon wastes no time telling Bruce the entire story. Unfortunately, though, Bruce says he thought the entire story was a lot of fun to listen to, but he doesn't believe a single word of it. After Bruce leaves, Gordon remarks to himself that Bruce has got to lead a pretty boring life because he doesn't seem to be interested in anything. Elsewhere, the door to Bruce Wayne's room slowly opens and reveals its occupant to be the Batman. If Commissioner Gordon could see his young friend now, he'd be amazed to learn that he is the Batman. So, what did I think? Honestly, Detective Comics number 627 was the first time that I ever read this story. Now, I'd cut my teeth on Batman in part by reading the greatest Batman stories ever told, which reprinted shitloads of Batman stories beginning in 1939 and then going right on through to the early 80s. So, when I read reprints of anything as a kid, I knew that I needed to contextualize the story for when it was written. That's why, when I was going through my little synopsis just now, I didn't get all sarcastic about a civilian being taken to a crime scene, a police commissioner discussing evidence in a case involving multiple counts of murder, how exactly Lambert's son was cleared of wrongdoing since Batman was the only one who knew all the facts of the case and probably doesn't give statements to, to the police, and things like that. To me, this is a fun story, and it packs a lot of punch for only being six pages long. It features five deaths, tons of action, a lot of mystery, and also a twist ending. And that twist ending is worth mentioning. Reading the comic as a 10-year-old, I knew damn good and well that the Batman beating the shit out of gunmen and speeding around in his car was in reality Bruce Wayne. But readers back in 1939 wouldn't have known that until the last panel of this comic. And if you ask me, that would have been a pretty good surprise ending to the story if you didn't already know Batman's secret identity. The other thing going on here is that Bill Finger took a lot of inspiration from Partners of Peril, a shadow pulp with a very similar concept of a conspiracy involving a group of businessmen who are all running a chemical company. If you've read Partners of Peril, 
you're probably very well aware of the similarities. A hell, you're probably aware of just how much inspiration and influence Batman owes to the Shadow. But credit where credit's due. Bill Finger managed to trim that story down into a six-page comic book story, which is no easy task. Now, true, the case of the Chemical Syndicate's kind of crude compared to a lot of other Batman stories that would be published just a few years later, but everything has to start somewhere. And I think it's amazing how much of Batman's world, when you really think about it, is not in evidence right here in the case of the Chemical Syndicate. You've got Batman, the whole concept of his secret identity as a bored socialite, and Commissioner Gordon. And that's about it. The other things that we commonly associate with Batman, like the Batmobile, the Batcave, Wayne Manor, Alfred, high-tech gadgets, costumed supervillains, and all that other bullshit, is nowhere on the horizon. It's coming, sure, but we're not there yet. The Batman we see in this story is a tough, mysterious, urban commando who takes no prisoners, always gets his man, and never hangs, or hangs around long enough for the police to arrest him. Now, compare this to Superman, where so much of his mythos were established right from the start. From the get-go, we see the familiar origin story, allusions to growing up in, uh, with the Kents, allusions to Smallville, allusions to the Daily Planet and Perry White, the introduction of Lois Lane, the basic outfit that Superman wore, more or less unchanged for decades, and shit like that. Superman underwent a lot of expansion in the decades to come, but so much of his world was set up right there in Action Comics number one. But Batman doesn't get that in Detective Comics number 27. In fact, change the costume and the names in the story... And you wouldn't necessarily know that you're reading a Batman story here. That's not a criticism. And honestly, it's really not a compliment either. It's just, it's an observation. Now, as to the art, Bob Kane gets picked on a lot by revisionists who want to set the record straight on what a so-and-so that Kane was and how mediocre his art might have been and all of that stuff. Honestly, I've got no interest in getting into that. It's not that I don't care or that I'm not interested in that stuff. It's just, it's not my battle to fight, you know? So, if you want to protect your vision of Bob Kane as Batman's mastermind, be my guest. If you're losing sleep over how you feel that Bill Finger got completely shafted, hey, more power to you. I'm not going to tackle that stuff either way, all right? What I can say is that I will assume that Bob Kane drew this story, and if he did, yeah, the art's a little primitive in certain places, made all the more so by the cheap-ass printing techniques that DC Comics used in the early 90s. But underneath all that, there's a power, an energy to the art. Within these fairly crude limitations, the art is powerful and dynamic. No, it's not the most polished art in Batman's history, but people, we've all read Batman comics with worse art than this. And I'll say something else. The art here in the case of the Chemical Syndicate 
is light years beyond Action Comics number one. You want to talk about a crude, mediocre, overrated artist? Look no further than Joe Schuster, baby. Some other notes. Batman's outfit in this issue is not completely on model with what it would be later on. Or is it? I wonder. Print technology back in the 1930s was even cruder than it was back in the 1990s. On top of that, colorists of that time usually had a more limited color palette to work with. So, because of that, a colorist's job, really, was to create contrast wherever he could. That meant making color choices that didn't necessarily reflect the penciler's intentions. Consequently, a lot of color design in Golden Age comics probably isn't meant to be taken literally. I truly believe that Bob Kane and Bill Finger probably wanted Batman's outfit to be completely black. But there most likely wasn't a very easy way to do that in comics in the 1930s and 40s. So instead, Batman's bodysuit was colored gray, and he was given a black symbol on his chest. But readers were supposed to infer that his bodysuit was black. Likewise, his cape is colored mostly black, but to keep the cape and cowl from looking like black blobs on the page, Batman's eyes are colored entirely white, and the fabric uh, was given blue highlights to reflect the light and give you an idea of the texture of the cape and cowl that was being implied in the art. The purple gloves were there to contrast against the blue and black ink on the page. We aren't necessarily supposed to believe that the Batman wore, he literally wore, purple gloves. That was just the best color available to create contrast in this case. Now, could I be wrong about all of that? Yeah, maybe. But I guess my question is, if Bill Finger and Bob Kane intended to give Batman a blue and gray outfit, why the hell didn't they just instruct the colorist to give him a blue and gray outfit? That wouldn't have been any easier or any harder than the color design the Batman has in the case of the Chemical Syndicate. From there, we all know what happened. Batman spent decades in this kind of silly-looking blue and soft gray colored uniform that I don't think... I've just never really liked that as much as Batman's darker outfits. Now, apparently I'm not alone on that. Cooler heads eventually prevailed at DC, and decades later, Batman's outfit was originally restored to the gray and black, or even the all-black outfit, which Finger and Kane originally intended. And for that, I'll be forever grateful. Anyway, the case of the Chemical Syndicate's been reprinted shitloads of times, so finding a copy should be easy enough. Unfortunately, though, most reprints have been edited. When Stryker wrestles away from the Batman, he says, and I quote, Sure, I did it, but you won't send me to the chair for it. Now, that dialogue balloon is usually missing from most reprints. Why was it ever removed? Well, the first reprint of the case of the Chemical Syndicate that I know about 
was in Detective Comics number 387. And that particular dialogue balloon is entirely absent from that issue. I don't know this to be true, but I think it's possible that Julius Schwartz, the editor of Batman Comics at the time, thought that a comic book character talking about the electric chair was just too balls out for kids back in the 1960s, so he just deleted it. That doesn't explain just why the hell the dialogue bo- uh, balloon has been absent from so many reprints of this, uh, of this story since that time, though. Again, I don't know this to be true, but my best guess is that the, the reprints after Detective Comics number 387 just recycled the same masters that were used back in Detective Comics number 387 without really giving it a whole lot of thought. It's kind of tough to say, though, because I don't think anybody's ever talked all that much about this. Anyway, another neat angle to the case of the Chemical Syndicate, at least for me, is how much Tim Burton obviously relied on it for uh, his first Batman film. No, the movie itself isn't an adaptation of this story, but at the same time, you can't overlook the case of the Chemical Syndicate's influence on the 1989 Batman film. For starters, there's the shootout in the Axis Chemical Factory, which to me seemed like a kicked-up version of the Batman showdown with Jennings and Stryker right here in the case of the Chemical Syndicate. The Batman leaping through the open transom to rescue Rogers from this story looks to me like it inspired Batman leaping off the catwalk to save Gordon from Jack Napier. The part at the beginning of the movie where Batman beats the shit out of the two muggers sure looks like a visual inspiration taken from the Batman attacking the gunman on the roof of the Crane residence. At least to me. I mean, honestly, the similarities are too many and too varied to be ignored. Tim Burton often gets picked on and criticized for not taking enough influence from the comics, but frankly, it looks to me like he took inspiration from comics that his critics have apparently never read. But that's another rant for another time. For right now, though, I'm going to take a break. Be right back after these messages. I'm afraid the end time is near. The cataclysmic apocalypse referred to in the scriptures of every holy book known to mankind. It will be an era fraught with boundless greed and corruption, where global monetary systems disintegrate, leaving brother to kill brother for a grain of overcooked rice. The nations of the civilized world will collapse under the oppressive weight of parasitic political conspiracies which remove all hope and optimism from their once faithful citizens. Around the globe, generations of polluters will be punished for their sins, unshielded by the ozone layer they have successfully depleted, left to bake in the searing naked rays of light. Wholesale assassinations serve to destabilize every remaining government, leaving the starving and wicked to fend for themselves. Bloodthirsty renegade cyborgs created by tax-dodging corporations wreak havoc. Pissed-off androids tired of being slaves to a godless and gutless system where the rich get richer and the poor get fucked over and out. Unleash total worldwide destruction by means of nuclear 
Holocaust, annihilating the terrified masses, leaving in its torturous wake nothing but vicious, cannibalistic, mutated, radiated, and horribly disfigured hordes of satanic killers bent on revenge, but against whom there are so few left alive. Starvation reigns supreme, forcing unlucky survivors to eat anything and anyone in their path. Massive earthquakes crack the planet's crust like a hollow eggshell, causing unending volcanic eruptions. The creatures of the seven seas, unable to escape to certain death upon land, boil in their liquid prison. Disease encircles the earth. Plagues and viruses with no known cause or cure, laying waste to whatever draws breath. And humankind, having proven itself to be nothing more than a race of ruthless scavengers, fall victim to merciless attack at the hands of our interplanetary alien tribes who seek to cover our charred remains. This is Extinction Level Event, the final world front, and there is only one year left. Hey everybody, Magnus here. Coming in July 2015 is Extinction Level Event, a new epic mega-series from Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Everybody loves those huge crossovers by Marvel and DC, and so I'll be talking about a bunch of them. Old ones and new ones, solo and with guests, as I make my way through some pretty memorable crossover events. This is Extinction Level Event, coming in July 2015 from Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, only at twotruefreaks.com. Continuing my look at Detective Comics number 627. This time around, I'll be checking out a story entitled, oddly enough, The Cry of Night is Kill. Written by Mike Friedrich, penciled by Bob Brown, and inked by Joe Gaella. I say that's odd because it's a reprint of a story from Detective Comics number 384 from May 1969, which was originally titled, The Cry of Night is Sudden Death. Why the wording and the title of the story was changed from Sudden Death to Kill for the purposes of this reprint here in Detective Comics number 627 is anybody's guess, but that's what happened. In any case, nights fallen across Gotham City as Batman and Robin swing around on their zip lines and jump across rooftops before arriving at their destination. Outside a house, they eavesdrop on Commissioner Gordon as he interrogates a murder suspect. Gordon tells the young man that his father's been murdered. His fingerprints were found on the murder weapon, and he will be taken in and booked for murder. The hippie shouts back at Gordon that he's abusing his authority as a police officer and pushing innocent people around. Gordon then recounts the butler's testimony, who said that he came in and saw the young man, named Mel Lambert, crouching over the, the father's lifeless body with the knife sticking out of his back, Mel fires back by saying the, but, uh, the butler didn't see Mel kill anybody. 
Batman and Robin choose that moment to make their entrance. Mel makes fun of Batman and makes a few references to Janis Joplin, assuming that Batman's too square to get it. Batman mentions Janis Joplin by name to prove he's not as out of touch as the hippie wants to believe, though. And then Batman asks Gordon to fill him in on what's happened, and Gordon's only too happy to oblige. Once he's done, Mel pops off to Gordon again, which just about sets Robin off, but Batman ends up calming him down. In scolding Robin, Batman's basically telling everyone to settle down and keep their emotions under control. He then asks Mel to tell his side of the story. Mel explains that he paid a visit to his father but was attacked by somebody. When he came to, his attacker was gone and his father was dead. That was just about the time the butler showed up, as Gordon established earlier. Batman examines Mel's motorcycle gloves and the murder weapon before saying the, evid uh, the evidence against Mel is circumstantial. It doesn't matter that... Uh, the butler never saw anybody else arrive or leave because there's a secret door into the library. Gordon says there's probably not enough evidence to stand up against Mel, at least for right now, but it turns out he's talking to thin air because Batman and Robin have vanished. Later, at the Batcave, Robin finally loses his cool. He doesn't understand why Batman's going so far out of his way to help a complete asshole like Mel Lambert. The guy doesn't respect the institutions that protect society, doesn't respect the law, and certainly doesn't respect Batman either. Batman points out that it's their job to protect everybody, not just the people they like the most. After that, they hop into the Batmobile and zoom off into the night. Their first stop is the lab of Stephen Crane, one of Lambert's partners in a syndicate engaged in important scientific and chemical research. Crane says he believes Mel Lambert's the, the one who's behind the elder Lambert's murder. Mel found out about a, a recent scientific breakthrough of theirs and confronted the group over it because he was positive that they'd find a way to militarize it. It'd be fair to say that Mel pretty much had a total meltdown over all this. In Robin's estimation, this is even more evidence against Mel, but on their way back to the Batmobile, Batman explains that he sees all of this as irrelevant bullshit. It's at best a flimsy motive for Mel to go on a killing spree. Mel may be a colossal dickhead, but there's no real proof yet that he's a murderer. At that moment, Batman and Robin hear gunshots go off in Crane's laboratory, so they race back inside and barely dodge an intruder's bullets. After Batman takes out the lights, darkness envelops the office, and it's hard to see the intruder as he makes his escape, but he bears at least a passing resemblance to Mel, and he appears to be holding a handful of papers. Robin hurls his battering and misses nailing the gunman with it, but he does knock the papers out of his hands. The dynamic duo retrieve the papers, confirm that Crane is dead, and then follow the gunman out the window, by which time he's already made his escape. Robin sees a set of tracks created by a motorcycle tread and demands they put out an APB on Mel Lambert. Batman refuses, though, because there's just no motive to any of this. Why would Mel Lambert want to kill his father and his business partners just to steal their research? Robin suggests he wants to eliminate them from becoming a threat and also prevent their research from falling into the wrong hands. Batman admits that's possible, but he, he still just doubts it. Instead, Batman decides to haul ass to see Paul Rogers. Meanwhile, Paul Rogers, afraid that Mel Lambert may kill him next, drops in on Alfred Stryker, 
Rogers is admitted into the building and then clubbed over the head from behind. When Rogers comes to, he finds a hippie holding a gun over both him and Alfred Stryker. Stryker confirms that the gunman's already killed Lambert and Crane. Batman and Robin bust in there just in time and the fight's on. The gunman fires wildly at the dynamic duo, but Robin grabs his feet while Batman punches him in the face. While the gunman's out cold, Robin unmasks him and discovers that whoever the guy is, he's not Mel Lambert. Alfred Stryker reveals that the gunman's an employee of his. Stryker picks up the gun and turns it on Rogers, which is Batman's cue to beat the hell out of him, too. After Stryker's been subdued, Batman outlines what really happened. Alfred Stryker was behind the whole thing all along. Batman's suspicions that Lambert's murder was related to his, biz uh, his business partnership were confirmed when Crane was murdered, too. Logically, the only person who'd want to do that would be either Paul Rogers or Alfred Stryker. The idea, the, the idea was to steal Crane's research and claim it as his own so that he could profit by it. The only way to accomplish that would be to eliminate his business partners. And Mel Lambert was the ideal patsy because he was known to be a fucking granola-munching hippie. Batman and Robin agree at that point that the case of the chemical syndicate is now closed. Once it's all over, Robin tells Batman that he's learned something today. It's sometimes really tempting to not want to presume a suspect is innocent until proven guilty, just because the suspect in question is a complete jackass. But that's the wrong way to go, and Robin now understands that he's got to be more level-headed and open-minded in the future. Meanwhile, Mel Lambert thinks to himself that he's learned something today. He was framed for murder, and if Batman hadn't gone to bat for him, so to speak, he'd be rotting in a jail cell right now. He certainly didn't help himself much by being such a loudmouth dickhead. But Batman's part of the system that Mel hates so much. How can someone like that ever be cool? Both Mel Lambert and Robin realize that they've got a lot of heavy thinking to do. The end. So, what did I think? Overall, I think this is a pretty good little update to the original case of the Chemical Syndicate. It's definitely of the 1960s, and that's not necessarily always a positive thing. The pop culture references are incredibly dated. Plus, the dialogue is very awkward and clumsy when it tries to use that peacenik hippie argo of the 1960s. It's like Mike Friedrich, the writer of this thing, is trying way too hard to give some characters, especially Mel Lambert, a modern vocabulary. Still, the story's vaguely political when it comes to weapons of mass destruction, to use the parlance of our times, and a lot of the story's conflicts derive from, from what were, at the time, current newspaper headlines and issues. There's something to be said for relevance to one's time period, at least in my opinion. Another thing this story does is show that Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams weren't solely responsible for shifting Batman back toward a darker tone. The story takes place completely at night, and there really is no camp to speak of here. As a matter of fact, I don't know how the rest of you feel, but I really wish people would stop using the word camp, because nobody ever really seems to use it correctly, but I digress. Fact is... This story isn't really dark, whatever the hell that even means anymore, but it's certainly not a Saturday morning cartoon either. In fact, 
I think there's a very good comparison between the tone of this story and the Schumacher Batman films. Those movies had their moments of serious darkness, punctuated by an overall lighter and more fun approach. Anytime we see retellings of and updates of stories, just to kind of move on to a different subject here, anytime we see retellings and updates of these types of stories, I always try to ask myself whether this is an update that needed to happen. And honestly, I think there's a strong argument here that this update to the case of the chemical syndicate is really important in terms of historical posterity. Not so much because of this story, this version of the story's merit, although I do think it's enjoyable enough in that regard, but mostly because it shows how dynamic a character Batman truly is. It also underscores the fact that his stories do have a certain timeless quality to them. His stories can be told, retold, reinterpreted, and passed down from one generation to the next. Stories like The Cry of Night is Kill are a good reminder that comic book superheroes are modern folklore and myth, always subject to new approaches and new interpretations. And I guess sort of beyond even that, there are very few characters that's truer about than Batman. As to the art, I'm mostly familiar with Bob Brown from his work on Superboy from around this same time. Oddly enough, he employed a kind of similar style where Superboy stories occasionally ever got ever so slightly darker than what was being published in the Superman books of that same time. And I gotta tell you, usually that approach would bug me, except somehow it was totally spot on for Superboy. But for as well as it works for Superboy, it works even better here. I truly don't think any other artist would have hit quite the same tone that Brown does. Infantino, Carmine Infantino, I should say, is he's one of the big name Batman pencilers from this era. And he would have made the entire thing a little too light. But Neil Adams, the other big name penciler, probably would have gone too dark with it. But Brown hits that perfect balance where I think Batman's arguably most effective. It's definitely a serious story, but it's not lost in darkness and hopelessness. Again, I think Batman Forever had a good mix of light and shade to it, and I'd compare the this story to that same level of balance. Anyway, the point is, I really enjoyed this story. Apart from Detective Comics number 627, I really don't know if it's ever been reprinted, but it's not like Detective number 627 goes for all that much on the back issue market, so it should be easy enough to find. So there's that. As for me, I'm going to take a break. Be right back after these messages.
dawn of an age. The founding of a family. You know we haven't done enough research into the effects of cosmic rays. We've got to take that chance. Conditions are right tonight. Let's go. They're penetrating the ship. Our shielding isn't strong enough. I feel like I'm burning up. Too heavy. Can't move. Too heavy. We're all alive. I feel so strange. You're fading away. I can't see you at all anymore. Look what's happened to you. You're changing. Oh, Reed, not you too. What happened to me? To all of us. I can fly. We gotta use that power to help mankind, right? And so was born the Fantastic Four. Or soon the Mole Man will have the entire world in his power. I am the mightiest living mortal on Earth. And now, mankind shall feel that might. The Fantastic Four. Little do they dream they're the palms in the hands of Dr. Doom. The Human Torch will be the Puppet Master's next victim. You Earthlings can't change the way I can. That means I'm the most powerful person on Earth. I've been expecting you, for I am a thinker. I vow never to return, my lord, until the Fantastic Four are no more, and the planet Earth is no more. You're in the presence of the awesome Ralatons, King of Kings, Master of Men, and Lord of the Seven Sons. Fool, you're just a muscular freak, blind or hulk. Stop! You must not end on the castle of Diablo. My journey has ended. This planet shall sustain him until it has been drained of all elemental life. So speak, Galactus. Flame on! It's clobbering time! The Fantastic Four from the very beginning witnessed the origins of a legend. The Fantasticast. ffcast.libsyn.com I'm back now and continuing my look at Detective Comics number 627. This time around, I'll be checking out a story entitled The Case of the Chemical Syndicate, written by Marv Wolfman, penciled by Jim Aparo, and inked by Mike DiCarlo. Batman watches over the city at night. An older man gets into a cab with an Iranian driver who complains about racism in America. The cab's attacked by a costumed woman who sprays it down with acid, destroying the vehicle and killing its passenger. The woman announces that her victim coordinated transportation, so it's only fitting he died in transport. The Iranian later recounts these details to homicide detective Dana Hanrahan. Batman arrives and Dana tells him that the victim was Theodore Lambert, vice president of CLRS Chemicals. Bruce Wayne knows Theodore's son, Ted Lambert, and has Alfred set up a late-night tennis game with him. Ted complains to Bruce about his father, who made his fortune by abusing the environment. Ted announces that he's waiting for his father to die so he can undo the damage using his father's fortune. Hanrahan arrives and accuses Ted Lambert of murdering his father. Ted admits to a history of arguing with his father about chemical dumping, but insists that he loved his father and would never kill him. There's a press conference held for CLRS Chemicals by public relations executive Stephen Crane. Crane manages to put a, a positive spin on the dumping, insisting that these chemicals can be used to save the planet. 
They're developing cleaning materials and pesticides to kill viruses and bacteria. The costumed woman arrives and reveals that she calls herself Pesticide. Pesticide murders Stephen Crane and his wife in front of a giant crowd, melting them both into a huge pile of goo. The crowd screams like hell and runs in terror, so she begins killing them indiscriminately. Batman arrives to investigate the convention center, and Pesticide tries to kill him, too. Pesticide escapes by burning a hole into the sewers. Hanrahan's horrified when she arrives and throws up several times at the sight of all the melted bodies. Later, Hanrahan investigates Fred Stryker, the chemist at CLRS Chemicals. Stryker was disfigured in a horrible chemical accident and is now confined to a wheelchair. His nursemaid, Mrs. Watkins, tells the police that he can't move or speak, so Hanrahan leaves. It's revealed that Fred Stryker has a daughter named Priscilla Stryker, who's taken on the identity of pesticide in order to avenge his injuries. The other three executives at CLRS refused to listen when Fred told them their chemicals were too dangerous and harmful to the environment. They were only concerned with making a profit. When a machine broke, the chemicals fell onto Fred Stryker. This was apparently a mechanical error, but Priscilla believes it was a plot by the others to kill him. The only remaining executive at this point is Paul Rogers, who's in charge of business at CLRS. He denies police protection, but Pesticide easily breaks through his security system. Pesticide reveals her identity to Rogers, who's her godfather. She kidnaps him and takes him to a chemical processing plant, where she dangles him over the vat of chemicals that destroyed her father. Batman arrives just in time and knocks the remote out of her hands with a batarang. He's barely able to swing Rogers to safety before she returns fire. Batman and Pesticide battle on the catwalk. Pesticide insists that she's not a killer. She only wants justice and asks if Batman wouldn't do the same thing that she's doing. Pesticide accidentally destroys the ground underneath her and then falls to her death in the tank of chemicals that she'd prepared uh, just a few moments earlier for Rogers. Batman stands on the catwalk and says aloud that no, he would not do the same thing that Pesticide has done. The end. So, what did I think? Honestly, I felt like this was really the weakest of the bunch, all the stories that are in this, uh, in this issue. And that's a little funny because this story is really the only one included in this entire collection that has real ties to continuity that was going on at the time. Commissioner Gordon's mostly substituted for in this story by Detective Hanrahan since he'd recently been sacked out in the hospital following his heart attack. The rest of the stories in Detective Comics number 627 have pretty much negligible ties to continuity or else none whatsoever. Still, it's interesting how this is the first time the element of revenge has been introduced into a version of the case of the chemical syndicate. Up to now, the stories primarily revolved around characters who are centered on greed. In the previous stories, Stryker did what he did because he wanted to be the sole owner of the chemical corporation. But here, Fred Stryker is the real victim, and Priscilla Stryker is only doing what she does out of a sense of revenge. Her father's been victimized in her eyes, and so she views it as her duty to kill the people responsible for it. There's an obvious parallel here to, to Batman himself. Priscilla does what she does from a sense of vengeance. And very bluntly, I view vengeance as Batman's dominant motive for doing what he does. Where they differ, though, is their means and their targets. 
Batman's on a crusade against evil as an abstract concept. And so, on some level, I think Batman realizes the hopelessness of his quest. But at the same time, I think he sees a more powerful moral victory in fighting against the darkness. It doesn't matter if he wins or loses. What matters is that he did his part to maintain order in an insane world. Priscilla's targets are far more specific. She wants to wipe out her father's former business partners. She wants to be sure that they'll never hurt anybody ever again. However, the element that she's overlooking in all of this is Ted Lambert. I mean, yeah, Lambert did hate his father's work. But nevertheless, Ted still lost his father because Priscilla killed him. In that sense, she's harming Ted even more than she herself's been harmed. Yeah, her father got completely fucked up by the toxic waste, but you know what? He's still alive. Ted's father isn't, though. Under the circumstances, I'd say Ted's loss far outweighs Priscilla's. But she doesn't see it that way. And... There's a kind of sort of narcissism to that, as she seems to believe that her pain is so much greater than any of the suffering that she's perpetuating. A cycle of violence and murder is underway here, and it's not going to get any better anytime soon. The problem is, Priscilla's so lost in her own hatred and thirst for vengeance that she just can't see it. And that's sad. Still, to me, the case of the Chemical Syndicate is a story that should be a very plot-driven affair. There should be enough character development to keep things interesting, but this is a simple, pulpy story at its roots, and I think Wolfman got a little lost in his own bullshit in trying to give Priscilla every compelling reason to do what she does in this story. Again, it's not bad, necessarily. It's just that I don't think that's how the case of the chemical syndicate ought to be done. But still, this is a relevant update of this classic story that related directly to the storytelling methods and styles of the late 80s and early 90s, back when every Batman villain in his rogues gallery had to have some kind of bullshit sob story or another. So I guess on that basis, it works incredibly well. Then you get into Jim Aparo's art. By this point in his career, I think it'd be fair to say that Aparo was starting to lose it. He wasn't completely toast by this point, but a lot of the flair that made his work on Batman from the 70s so dynamic is barely noticeable by this point in the guy's career. Now look, don't get me wrong. He could still pace the action on a comic book page like nobody's business, but by this point, by this point in his career, he was starting to lose what made him Jim Aparo. The work's still very sharp, though, so at least there's that. I just think it's a little bit weak sauce in a lot of cases. As I say, this story has a ton of emotional heft to it. My big reservation about that, though, is that I don't know if that's entirely appropriate to this story. Like I said, it had become a little bit of a cliché by this point to set up Batman's villains as his mirror opposite. On top of that, I think it's just a wrong-headed approach to a story that should be all about plot and action. But it's not a major problem, so... So anyway, I think that's that. I'm gonna take a break and be right back after these messages. 
Play it. Come on. Play it loud. Play it loud. And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Illogic. Foolish emotions. A constant irritant. Intense turn out! Three! Two! Along the circus. <laughs> right next to the dog faced boy. True! I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Oh, it's a super prize package worth $9,388. Money. This isn't the biggest bag over the head punch in the face I ever got. God damn it! Ow! Go away, Peyton. And now, together by live simulation via the internet, your hosts, Scott Gardner. He killed a police officer, for Christ's sake! Yeah, goddamn lucky he didn't kill her. And Chris Honeywell. Keep away! Keep away from me! You are physically repulsive, intellectually retarded, vulgar, insensitive, selfish, stupid. You have no taste, a lousy sense of humor, and you smell. Looking at me? Yeah, because she thought you're some kind of freak. Now come on, she let's go. She likes me, eh? No way. Shut up, you freak! Julia Shu. I said shut up! It's a man home! A man home! Two true freaks dot com. Okay, I'm back now and continuing my look back at Detective Comics number 627. This time around, I'll be checking out a story entitled The Case of the Chemical Syndicate, written by Alan Grant, penciled by Norm Brayfogle, and inked by Steve Mitchell. Late at night, a bum walks down the highway into Gotham City. He finishes drinking his bottle of table wine and throws it at a sign. Elsewhere, there's a disturbance at the GC Chemco when a thief steals something in one of the trucks. Batman and Commissioner Gordon arrive to investigate. The guard on duty explains that he chased the thief to an office where they stumbled on the corpse of company owner Professor Lambert. The thief takes his mask off and reveals that he's Mel Lambert, Professor Lambert's son. After reviewing the evidence, Batman determines that Mel could not have possibly killed his father. He bases this on fibers on the knife. Even so, Batman realizes that Mel's still hiding something and without warning, he snatches a huge bag of cocaine out of Mel's pocket. Mel brings brings out a gun and threatens to shoot Commissioner Gordon unless he's allowed to leave. Batman suggests that Mel get a snort for the road and throws the bag of cocaine directly into Mel's face, after which he knocks him into the middle of next week. While Mel's getting taken into custody, Batman decides to leave so that 
he can check up on Professor Lambert's various other business partners. Meanwhile, the homeless drunk man from the beginning of the story tries his best to tell a cop that his friends are all dead, but the cop won't listen because he's a homeless drunk man. Elsewhere, Lambert's partner, Stephen Crane, is at home reading when his butler receives a call from Commissioner Gordon announcing that he's on his way to pay Crane a visit. The butler announces that much to Crane, at which time there's a knock on the door. Believing the visitor to be Commissioner Gordon, the butler opens the door and then gets pistol-whipped by two robbers. The intruders force Crane to open his safe and then shoot him in the head. Batman crashes through the window and into the room, at which time he beats the fertilizer out of both of the killers. They confess that a man named Paul Rogers hired them to make it look like a robbery, but in fact they were always there with the assignment to kill Crane. Batman and Gordon rush to the Rogers Chemical building at that point. A short time later, at Rogers Chemicals, owner and president Paul Rogers is forced by an anonymous gunman to write a confession to the murders of Lambert and Crane. Rogers murdered them out of jealousy because they succeeded after he'd been bought out of the partnership. At least, that's what he's being coerced into, into writing into his suicide note. As all that's going on, the homeless man is attacked by several muggers. But Batman sees this, defends the homeless man, and chases the muggers off. Meanwhile, the police converge on Rogers' chemicals and burst in to find Paul Rogers dead in what looks like a, a suicide. Gordon finds the coerced confession-slash-suicide note that Rogers was forced to write at gunpoint and believes that the case has wrapped itself up. Batman arrives at that moment, asking just what the hell's going on, and Gor uh, Gordon brings him up to speed, and, just for fun and games, Batman hollers out to Alfred Stryker that he should give himself up because his secret's out. Gordon wonders what the hell Batman's doing, but Batman says he's just playing out a hunch. Out of nowhere, Alfred Stryker jumps out of the shadows, opens fire on Batman and Gordon, who are both forced to find cover. Batman swings a battering across the building, which dislodges a metal pipe which smacks Stryker upside the head. Having dropped his gun, Stryker has no choice but to try and make a run for it. He attempts to vault over some railing, but loses his balance and falls into a vat of acid. A fitting end for his kind. Batman then explains that Alfred Stryker owned a disposal company. For years, he was meant to be incinerating GC Chemicals toxic waste, but he was greedy. It was cheaper to just bury the shit, and also cheaper for Lambert and his partners to pretend that they didn't know what was going on. That turned into a real problem, though, when Gotham City bought Stryker's dumping grounds for a housing project. As a matter of fact, this led to an incident where several homeless men died after a huge cache of toxic waste bubbled up and they ended up drowning in it. Stryker killed off his partners so they couldn't report him to the police. And thus ends the case of the Chemical Syndicate. So, what did I think? You know, I gotta say, I put the Alan Grant, Norm Brayfogle run on Batman up there with the best runs that Batman's ever had. And I mean the greats. O'Neill Adams, Englehart Rogers, anybody at all. Alan Grant was known for writing Batman stories with a conscience. Or social justice, to again use the parlance of our times. It wasn't enough to have plenty of wall-to-wall -wall action. 
Usually, Alan Grant wanted to comment on gang violence or urban decay or political corruption or homelessness or, in this case, corporate negligence. Grant had an interesting way of weaving all of this shit into a story in an organic way so that it, it didn't seem distracting. Or at least, not too distracting. Interestingly enough, though, Grant's the only writer in this entire comic book to reference not just the original Case of the Chemical Syndicate, but also The Cry of Night is Kill, from originally published in Detective Comics number 387 that I talked about a couple of segments back, inasmuch as he gave the Lambert son the name Mel, and had him falsely accused of the murder, and at which time he turned belliger uh, belligerent with Batman and the police. Now, true... Grant's version of the story showed Mel Lambert to be guilty of real crimes, if not necessarily murder, but at the same rate, I think it'd be fair to say that the Comics Code would have forbidden showing Mel Lambert using any kind of drugs back in the 60s. But let's face it, the punk kid was a hippie, so if you don't think he was turning on, tuning in, and dropping out, you're fucking crazy. So that much actually rang true, even though it was still at least on paper, kind of a departure from what had come before. All of this is a long way of saying that I actually kind of dug this aspect of the story. Another cool angle in all of this was the intentional misdirection of Stryker hiring assassins to kill Crane under the name of Paul Rogers. It showed a clearer, more calculating side to Alfred Stryker. Plus, it gives him a motive to eliminate all his partners all at once. In the original Chemical Syndicate story, there really was no motive for Stryker to kill everybody all in one night. Same thing applies in The Cry of Night is Kill. Eliminating everybody all at once only shines a spotlight on the guilty party. But in Grant's telling of the story, Stryker was desperate. He had to kill everybody to cover up his own misdeeds. Sooner or later, arrests were going to be made and beans were going to be spilled. Yeah, he was risking a lot in killing Lambert, Crane, and Rogers all in one night, but he didn't have any other choice. He was up against the clock. So, again, that worked for me. Still, Stryker isn't a criminal mastermind or a supervillain. He's a greedy businessman in way over his head. He never realized that Batman was completely bluffing about having figured everything out. If Stryker hadn't opened fire on Batman and the police, he probably would have gotten away with it. Again, this is completely logical because he's a businessman and a scientist. This type of criminal behavior is absolutely foreign to him. Of course he doesn't know when people are bluffing. That same thing underlies Stryker's goof in hiring assassins under Crane's name. The assassins thought that they were working for Crane which therefore makes it kind of, sort of, totally impossible that Crane would off himself right when he should have thought that he was getting away with everything. Honestly, the one false note through all of this was Commissioner Gordon buying into the Rogers suicide note immediately and without question. Now, I realize that this is a completely subjective thing, but I believe that Commissioner Gordon's a sophisticated enough cop to smell a rat in a, in a case like this. It just seems like the suicide note tied things up, the entire case in fact, 
just a little too conveniently. Gordon would have questioned Stryker just to be thorough, if nothing else. Still, this stuff's all nitpicking. I'm having to kind of scrape the bottom of the barrel here for something to pick apart because Grant pretty much closed all the plot holes in this story. Everything proceeds from a logical chain of events. Now, as to the art, this may be my favorite Batman story that Norm Brayfogle ever drew. His Batman is dark, driven, vengeful, and an unstoppable force of nature. He's intelligent, cunning, and powerful, and he knows a line of bullshit when he sees it, and he has no trouble in identifying Mel Lambert early in the story and Alfred Stryker later in the story as criminals and lawbreakers. In fact, Brayfogle went way beyond the call of duty by throwing in a few Bob Kane-isms into his art. I think probably the best example of that that I can think of would be on page 19 in this story, where the ears on Batman's mask have a kinda, sorta mangled appearance that you usually associate with Bob Kane, especially in the original case of the Chemical Syndicate story. Anyway, so I think that's about it for all of these stories. Overall, Detective Comics number 627 is one of the greatest Batman comics that's ever been published. Each of these stories presents more or less the same basic story with the same general cast of characters, but filtered through the radically different lenses of various editors, writers, and pencilers over the decades. True. Some of these stories are more engaging than others, but they've all got that timeless, indefinable quality that makes for a great Batman story. This entire episode, everything that you've heard up to now, is a really fucking long way of saying that my pop bought this comic book for me back when I was 10 years old because he loves me and he wanted to do something nice for me. It's not the comic book that I wanted at the time. What I really wanted was Batman number 368. People, I've acquired, since that time, I've acquired Batman number 368. And do you know how many times I've read it? Maybe three. But, do you know how many times I've read Detective Comics number 627? I truly have no fucking idea. But I'd be shocked if it's less than 30. There's so much of what makes Batman an awesome character in this comic book that I'd actually point to this one issue, Detective Comics number 627, as a damn near perfect introduction to this character and his world. Back in 1991, when this comic book came out, I originally thought that I'd gotten gypped. Totally fucking gypped. Now I realize that whether he intended to or not, Pop gave me what may well be my all-time favorite Batman comic book. And how could I possibly complain about that? Then or now. So, I love you, Pop. Anyway, so that's pretty much it for me this week. This episode's gone long as it is, so there's really not going to be any time for feedback. So, so I'll see you guys next week. Bye, everybody.
If you like strange pop culture, if you like obscure stuff that you wish you'd have heard of years ago and you don't know what it is, if you like just that kind of stuff, old radio, um, obscure, unmarketable pop culture, uh, strange chiptune music, um, all sorts of things like that can be found on the Quake Reversal Satellite on Overnightscape Underground at O-N-S-U-G dot com. It's an amazing show at an amazing place full of uh, strange and unmarketable internet transmissions. Hours and hours and days and just O-N-S-U-G dot com. Take a look around and I bet you you'll find something. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I've put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing, and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the 2TrueFreaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. 
any similarity to living persons, or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy.